Amen. Would you please be seated, friends? Tonight we're stepping away from Acts uh, to look at Psalm 131. (coughs) Again, if you will listen to the Lord's word, it is a song of ascents of David. The psalmist writes, O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rest against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. This is the Lord's word. Would you bow with me, friends, as we ask the Lord's help? Again, our Father in heaven, we have come to you, we read your word, and we confess, Father, that the servant and your people, that together we are weak, we are frail, we are but dust. We are a people who are distracted by so many things. And we would ask, Father, that you would bless us, that you would come and be present with us now by your spirit, that you will help us as the word is opened. We pray that it will be opened faithfully and that it will be delivered plainly. And we ask for your spirit's presence, for his power. We have just sung to you, O Lord, that you would come and be present with us now by your spirit, and that you, O Spirit, would come and bring quickening power to open eyes, the eyes of the heart, to give ears to hear the truth of the gospel. We pray that uh, Christ will be magnified in every heart, and we pray, O Lord, that our hearts would be bowed before him and humble adoration. We thank you for how you love us, how you care for us and sustain us. And now we commit ourselves to you yet again, asking that you would protect us from the evil one, his wiles, his schemes, his darts. And we ask, O Father, that we would have our faith strengthened as we look to you. Thank you. And again, we ask now your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Those who fail to plan, plan to fail. Heaven helps those who help themselves. If you want to succeed, you've got to think high of yourself. Or if you don't look out for yourselves, no one else will. Or to quote William Henley, Invictus, the last two lines, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Gee, those sound like all really good, sound biblical principles, don't they? (laughs) I'm sure you could think of a multitude of other statements that run along these lines, the gist of which exalt men in his efforts. Um, do Do you question whether these things are right or wrong? Or they don't sound so bad oftentimes to our ears, perhaps because we've drunk deeply of the culture. And so the wisdom of the age sounds almost right. I think it was Charles Spurgeon who said, discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. It's knowing the difference between what is right and what is almost right. And these things sound almost right, but they're not right. Whereas the culture would exhort and exalt the human spirit as triumphant, the Lord David the psalmist would have us learn that it is not by the flesh or fleshly ambition that we secure our futures either on earth or in heaven but our good comes to us 
by a quiet hope and rest in the Lord. It's a childlike psalm that is before us and a childlike reminder of how we need to approach the Lord. And it's not in the power of our flesh. The flesh does not secure heavenly blessing. Again, listen to what David says in verse 1. O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Here we have a prayer of, of David, a prayer of confession to the Lord. Bear in mind that he is praying to the Lord. He's speaking directly to the Lord. And notice it does no good to lie to the Lord because the Lord knows who are lying. And it does not do any good to try to fake the Lord. I remember uh, the man who discipled me. He was actually just a few years older than me, and I was in high school. And I made the mistake of, while we were praying together, of thanking the Lord for my homework. I was only 15. <laughs> and I thanked the Lord for my homework. And he goes, he stopped me right in the middle of prayer and said, why did you say that? He goes, are you really thankful for your homework? And I said, no. He goes, well, then don't say that in prayer. <laughs> Be honest, be forthright with the Lord. I would encourage you, be, be honest before the Lord. Here he confesses, um, David confesses his heart, and that he is not proud, nor are his eyes haughty. The actions uh, overflow from the heart, so a proud heart would yield a highbrow approach to others. Here David confesses to having no pride in his heart. He is not lifted up or puffed up in his attitude concerning himself or others. And secondly, he would state that he is not presumptuous. Presumptuous, uh, pr being presumptuous is being overconfident or arrogant. So he says, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. So David is not high on himself, nor does he think that he has all the right stuff. A proud person will think so well of themselves that they think the world around them couldn't possibly go on without them or their giftedness. And being presumptuous, they would go after lofty things or things that are way above uh, their heads because they have a very inflated view of themselves and their abilities. David claims innocence, innocence regarding pride uh, and presumption. Now, it would help us if we understood a little bit of the context of why does David say these things. So it helps to understand. And if we could pinpoint this psalm to some occasion in his life, uh, it would help us maybe understand why he's saying this. But sadly, scholars are not in any agreement as to what occasioned this psalm. Some commentators consulted say that though we can't be sure. It is believed to be from early on in David's life, sometime before his ascension to the throne, after he had been anointed by Samuel the prophet to be the next king of Israel. Remember that David uh, was anointed prior to killing Goliath, and that it was at age 30. So we figure it was somewhere between, he wrote this somewhere between his 16th and his 30th birthday. Remember all of those years, 13, 14 years, we ran around the wilderness gathering mighty men to himself. And he had many occasions, or at least two occasions, where he, he could have struck down Saul, and he didn't. So he has um, been anointed by Samuel the prophet to be the next king of Israel, but he has not yet ascended to the throne. Accusations were made that David had become too big for his britches. 
or that he had gotten a big head because now he's been anointed the king of Israel. Um, that he was now pursuing Israel's throne in some fleshly or self-aggrandizing way. We do read of Eliab, David's older brother, casting dispersions upon David's character. Remember when David came to visit his brothers during Goliath's 40 days rant. Uh, Eliab says, I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart. You're just up here because you're a busybody, because you, have, you want to get involved with something. You're a nobody. Boy, the jealousy between his brothers and David must have been great. Matthew Henry suggests that, this, uh, that it was Saul and his officers who represented David as an ambitious and inspiring young man who underwent, or who under the pretense of divine appointment, sought the kingdom in the pride of his heart. Whatever the reason was why David penned this, it is clear that somebody had falsely accused David. And so he goes to the Lord, who does know all, and he pleads his innocence. David is not that way. He is not full of pride. He is not full of presumption. Though anointed the king of Israel, he was not pursuing it in his flesh. So remember this. Here he has been, if true, and I, I'm inclined to believe this is true, that he was already anointed. He's anticipating going, rising to the throne of Israel, and yet now people are starting to talk about him. You just think you're so hot. You just think you're so important. And David says, no, actually, I don't think this. I'm not approaching the throne of Israel. Remember the difference between Saul and David. Saul, who would reign on the throne of Israel from the standpoint of what do the people want? And everything the people wanted, Saul would deliver. He was truly a man like uh, the nations, the other nations had. He was a leader like the other nations had. But David was not this way. Though anointed king, he was not pursuing it in his flesh. It was not David who applied for the role of king. He was not looking for it. Rather, it found him. God had sent Samuel to Jesse and his sons. All of Jesse's sons had passed before the aged prophet. And Samuel would ask, is this it? Are there not any others? And remember what Jesse's response was. Well, there is the youngest, David, but he's out with the sheep. And Samuel would say, go get him. David was contented to serve his father by tending his sheep. He had no fleshly ambition for the throne of Israel. And it was on a mission from his father when he hears and sees Goliath. Here is a principle that we live by. First Peter 5, uh, 5 through 6 says, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. My friends, it's not the flesh which the Lord honors. It is not pride and presumption which the Lord blesses, but the humble he will raise up. This is important to remember because in our world, while we're always trying to sell ourselves and advantage ourselves and, and, and remember the disciples arguing about who's the greatest or, or James and John saying, well, we want the seats on either side of you, Jesus. We want the, the seats next to your throne in the, the coming kingdom. We want these things and all 10 all 12 or the other 10 disciples got upset with James and John because they're arguing about who's the greatest and who's the most important and who should have the most significant place. Jesus says quite the opposite, doesn't he? It's not like this among my people. My people aren't to be like this. We're not like the leaders of the world. 
We're not like the, the, the politician who's out there extolling themselves and saying, this is why you should vote for me because I'm better than all these other knuckleheads. Well, we don't do this. We see in Christ the servant leadership. We see in David a tremendous humility who's not looking and gunning for the top dog position in Israel, but is very content to just serve the Lord. Consider Solomon, who did not feel fit himself for becoming the king of Israel after his father, who came to the Lord and asked for an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge this great people of yours? Solomon would say, I'm like a child. How am I going to do this? And Daniel and the youth, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they were carried away into, to the Babylonian exile, whereas they might have been full of pride and presumption, they would not eat the king's meat, they would obey the Lord, they would take no credit for the interpretation of dreams, but would give glory to God, while they might have exalted themselves, extolled themselves, look at us, see how important we are in the king's service, they didn't. And there is Moses, who, like Solomon, perhaps even more so, who tried to convince God that someone else should be sent because he felt his lack of qualification for the task at hand. In fact, we had a wonderful discussion in Sunday school this morning, um, and it seemed to fit nicely here. Uh, I find it quite interesting that um, in Numbers 12.3, Moses is called the most humble man or the most meek man uh, that ever lived on the, or that lived on the face of the earth at that time. But if you'll turn with me for a second to Acts chapter 7, there's something quite significant about this that I think uh, bears, uh, is worth noting. If you look at verses 22 through 25, and listen to what Stephen says about, about Moses. We're told Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and, looked, and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. Striking. He struck him. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him. But they did not understand and so we have a, a picture of, of Moses, who's a man of great power in word and deed, a man who figured, I'm, I'm the one who's supposed to go and deliver these people. And then, and then something happens to him. He, he flees for his life from Egypt. For 40 years, he lives in the wilderness until he meets God in the burning bush. Um, during that 40 years, something significant happened to Moses because at that burning bush, he says, I think you might have the wrong guy. I can't speak. This man who was powerful in word and deed um, was no longer considered himself powerful in word or deed. He had become, since the time of 40 to 80, he had become, I would maintain, the most humble man on the face of the earth. I think probably at the age of 40, he was strutting around saying, it's time to deliver my people. And he was humbled. 
And then he comes back. And what's interesting to me, if you will look with that, to Exodus 3, verse 20. Exodus 3, verse 20. We read this. And it's the Lord talking. I'll start in 19. But I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion. This is the Lord speaking. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles, which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, he will let you go. Moses was to lead the people of Israel out of their bondage. But Moses' leading was not to be in his own strength. Moses' leading was to come in, the, in the, the form of humility and meekness. And to further establish this, remember what God told Moses, speak to the rock and water will come out. And what does Moses do? He strikes it. It's an interesting play on words or an interesting use of words that, no, Moses, you're not going to lead my people out by your strength, by your might, by your, your striking anything. But it'll me reaching out my hand who strikes and who delivers by my power and by my miracles, by my signs. Moses, you're not fit in your own flesh, in your own strength to lead my people. I'm convinced that the Lord's, our entire lives, what he's doing is he's weaning us off of ourselves. And he's, he's bringing us by his side. And he will be the one who delivers. And this is the picture we see of David. Certainly the greatest example of this very thing is how did the Lord Jesus come into this earth? Now, now consider, this is the son of glory. He shares glory with the father before, before the foundations of the earth. Christ is the one who spoke the word into existence at the decree of God. He was present and he formed all of these things. He should have come and, and he could have come with might and glory. And yet he comes in a manger. He comes as a baby. He's greeted by the riffraff of society, by these shepherds, and by a lowly maiden and, and her husband, a carpenter, in the town of Bethlehem. And while he walked the earth, he knew what people were thinking. He knew what they were saying. He could do all sorts of things. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17, we have, this is my son, whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. They see his glory, Peter, James, and John do. At his arrest, he said, do you not think, remember when Peter tries to lop the head off of the guard? <laughs> no, because, but he only gets his ear. And, and Jesus says, do you not think that I could call down 12, I could ask my father for 12 legions of angels, and I would have them at my disposal. May, friends, make no mistake that Jesus Christ had all authority and power, and yet he doesn't come to earth with strength. He came in meekness. He came as a lamb led to the slaughter. And it is by that slaughter that we are healed. It was by his weakness that he has conquered the devil and defeated our enemies and his enemies. Listen to what Paul would write in Philippians 2. Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
And so David says, O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters. He is not a man who is, despite the, the accusations against him, that's not what I'm doing, Lord. I don't think I'm better than anyone else. I don't think I'm deserving of any of these things. We saw this in what we just read in 2 Samuel 7. Who am I that you're thinking of me? Was it not enough you made me a king and now you're going to establish this throne in my household forever? He doesn't boast in the Lord and he doesn't think himself uh, important. But we do see this, however, in the scriptures. We have the example of King Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel who thought he was something quite important and something quite big. That he was the reason that Babylon was so great. Remember what the Lord did with him. He humbled him for seven years, drove him out of his mind. His fingernails became like talons and his hair became like the feathers of a bird until he acknowledged who the rightful king and authority is. And then there was Uzzah, Uzziah, rather, the good king who thought that he was entitled to go and perform the duties of a priest. Remember this story? It's, it's, it's tragic, really, because he did many great things in Israel. And then he decided that I'm good enough that I can go in there and offer sacrifices. And the 80 mighty men, the priests came and said, oh, no, you can't. And they rushed him out and he broke out in leprosy. This man who was so high upon himself got humbled terribly. And there was no more humbling disease in the Old Testament times than the disease of leprosy, which made you an outcast of society. My friends, it is not flesh it is not pride and presumption that the lord honors david confesses his innocency of being driven um, by a proud and presumptuous heart we learn from david's example that the lord honors the lowly in heart those who see realistically who they are and who place no confidence in the flesh friends this is why uh, christianity is such a, a strange thing I remember hearing just back um, back in the spring, or was it in the summer, Tucker Carlson saying, you know, Christianity is such a strange thing, you know. Their most famous hymn, Amazing Grace, talks about how wretched they are. He goes, what people sing about how wretched they are, right? We, we are unique in this. We're not trying to sell ourselves. We come in here and we're devoid of any spiritual pomp and circumstance. We're weaklings. We're fallen. And that's precisely why we're here, because we have a God who receives the broken. He receives the sinner. He receives the man who is not high on himself, who, took, who take no confidence in their flesh. Paul himself would ask, who is sufficient for these things? Yet, like James and John uh, in the church, like the world, we thrust ourselves forward into service and salvation and say, I'm good enough. I'll take hold of God. And that's not what we see in David. And that's certainly not the attitude we saw in the Lord who came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Believing that I have all the right stuff, all the right brains, gifts, and works, that somehow I'm God's gift to the world, God's gift to himself. Um, we're in trouble. You don't have the right stuff to do God's work. When God calls, he calls because he is going to get the glory, not you, not me. He is the one who equips. He is the one who sustains. 
Have you ever wondered why God chose fishermen and tax collectors to spread the gospel, to lead the church? Have you ever wondered how God uses broken and weird people to parent children, broken and empty people, emptied of selves, emptied of self-righteousness? He welcomes with open arms into his kingdom, whereas the good people, the so-called good people, he turns away. What did Jesus mean in Matthew 18 when he said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. A man of pride and presumption may no more be just and, and godly king than of a man of flesh can enter into the kingdom of heaven. This is David. This is David waiting to ascend to the throne. O Lord, my heart is not proud nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. We see in verse 2 that we must become as children who rest in the Lord. David says this, Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. <clears throat> to be composed means to be level, to be smooth, to be still. David has composed and quieted his soul. He is not frantic about the future. He is not scared that somehow he won't be taken care of, that he won't ascend to the throne. Rather, he has peacefulness and tranquility in his heart. This is the analogy that David gives. If you've ever seen an infant, when they get hungry, they become frantic, wondering, where's my food? Where's my food? My, are these little babies back here? You know, they seem content. Uh, one, one second, and the next second, they just, ah! they scream, they're so hungry. It says, oh, 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 I gotta eat, gotta eat. And you see the mother trying to nurse that baby, and the baby's frantically trying to, trying to get food into its stomach. But when the children are weaned from their mother, they are no longer frantic that way. They know that at the right time and in the right manner, they will get everything that they need. And David says, Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. David is weaned. He is like a, a child who is, is content and is satisfied and is waiting on, upon his father in this instance to provide him with what he needs when he needs it. He is the anointed king of Israel, but he does not need to worry about when he is supposed to take the throne. In fact, when given the opportunity to kill Saul, and, and um, he doesn't. He could have taken the attitude, well, let's just kill him and get him out of the way and get on with life already. And yet David says, no, not at the expense of doing things in a manner that honors the Lord. We will not do that. And so for 13, 14 years, I'm guessing, David rides around uh, the Middle East there on horseback with his soldiers waiting upon the Lord. He is contented. So when given the opportunity to speed things up, he doesn't take it. After he is anointed, we do find him even still working his father's sheep. Dad, I'm out of here. Don't you know I've got to go learn the books. I've got to go figure out what's going on now in this country that I'm anointed to be king over. We don't even see that, do we? 
He's anointed, and the king Saul treats him like garbage. Saul says, where's that boy? I need someone to play the harp. And he goes and gets his harp, and he comes. He's not high in himself. David has a contentment. He will wait upon the Lord. His soul is at rest. He will continue to serve the Lord as before and allow the Lord to do things in his timing. As the Lord's people, we can learn from this as well, that we are often so frantic to try to make things happen faster than we can move them. To see family members converted, children changed, ourselves changed, churches grown, vocations secured, ministries started. We get into all of these things. It dawned on me as we've been looking through the book of Acts that it was the Holy Spirit who said, Send, set apart uh, Barnabas and Saul for me for the work that I'm calling them to do. It wasn't even instituted or initiated by the church. It was initiated by the Spirit. They simply waited upon the Lord in prayer and in fasting. And they said, Lord, lead us in the way you would have us go. That's not being lazy. That's being contented. <laughs> that's, that's waiting for the Lord to direct and guide his people. The encouragement here we find is that we should just stop sometimes. We should stop. Serve the Lord with what he has given you and where he has placed you among those with whom you live. Serve the Lord in this manner. It is difficult, I know, sometimes, especially in our uh, age where everything, our microwave, our cable modem age, to just relax and rest and wait upon the Lord. And yet David says, I am like a weaned child next to his mother. Father, whatever you want, whenever you want it, I am here and I'm waiting for you. Friends, this is what the Lord calls us to, to wait upon him, to be weaned and content and let him move upon us and move us when he wants to move us. And finally, for this reason, because in verse 3, our hope is in the Lord. And, uh, and in the Lord, our hope is not a worthless endeavor. Verse 3, he gives instruction here. David is resting in the Lord. Israel, too, the people of God as well, need to hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. David can do this. Not be forward and proud and not be frantic because his hope is in the Lord. He knows that the Lord is going to take care of things for him. His future life, his provisions, all of these things will be taken care of. And he calls upon Israel, especially those who are impatient with how long everything is taking, hope in the Lord. And that, my friends, might be a, a timely word for us in this church. Hope in the Lord. Oh, how we would love to see things move faster and be done. But we hope in the Lord because he's doing something perfect in his timing. Hope in the Lord and not in ourselves. Don't place confidence in our flesh. Hope in the Lord and do so forever. Anticipate now and forever his continual watch care over you and that he will bring us safely home. Hope always and only in the one who gave his son for us did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all for we are told how will he not also with him freely give us all things 
That's the instruction. David was a man, a king, who would trust the Lord and wait quietly upon the Lord, knowing that in the Lord things would end out, end up the way, just the way the Lord wanted them to end. And so can we. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, again, we thank you for this night and thank you for your word. And pray, Father, that we could have um, even what we saw in the Lord Jesus himself who came and, and um, was humbled, who came and who endured the humiliation of being identified with us, taking upon himself human flesh, and who made it his goal to obey and do the will of the Father and not his own will. Patiently, he endured. Patiently, he endured and waited upon you that you would raise him again from the dead on that first day of the week. Our Father, we thank you for the patience of our Lord, and we thank you for his endurance and his uh, contentment in you. And pray that in the same manner, Father, that as we undergo various trials, as we go undergo various struggles, we ask that we would not grow weary, but that we would have our hope renewed and strengthened, that we would be like children waiting upon you, that we would be in our own hearts composed and quieted, that we would not be stirred and anxious. Bless us, we pray, to this end. And again, we ask that Christ would be magnified in all of this. And we ask it in his name. Amen.